content moderation is always a losing battle because there's a fundamental asymmetry between order and chaos, and chaos always has the advantage in tempo. In trying to bring about order, we must inevitably embrace the void. If anyone was ever going to make it back from the void, I suppose it was going to be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 227 of Embrace the Void, where you have been micro-targeted for maximum interaction. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we're talking the tech side of the epistemic crisis. So let's all log off and listen up. Life ends in death, which we as a species are cursed with knowing, resulting in something. My guest this week is Philip Markelin, a former data analyst at ETH who writes on the role of technology in our epistemic crisis. Philip, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. I actually ran into you in a like random hangout thing. The only one that I've ever done that was being hosted by Chris Kavanaugh of the Guru Pod. And I thought you had some very, you know, uh, interesting things to say about the role of technology in this kind of epistemic crisis that we're all dealing with right now. So I was excited to have you on to chat a little more about that. Before we get into it, we're going to focus on an article that you wrote called How Algorithmic Curation Breaks Our Brain. Before we get into that, do you want to tell folks a little bit about your background and the approach that you're kind of bringing to the epistemic crisis? Sure. So, I mean, I, I come from a natural science background, right? I studied chemistry and biochemistry. Then I did my PhD in translation of biomedicine and then moved kind of uh, on towards more data science and worked in a, mach a pure machine learning lab as a bioinformatician. And basically, when a project fin finished, I decided to leave academia and, and look basically what to do there. And since I've been doing SciComm for years, I kind of naturally to ex uh, tried to expand my portfolio and make it a bit more professional on the SciComm. And um, yeah, this is this is kind mm -hmm. of where, what got me more and more into writing and what really got me engaged in this epistemic crisis uh, that that seems to be a big problem with social media is basically uh, I was writing about the lab leak hypothesis, right? So a friend of mine asked me for help uh, to to look into it, and so I did. And then I wrote a, a blog article. I went on some podcasts, and basically this this unearthed this whole deep, dirty underbelly of social media conspiracism, grifting, and the general toxic behavior. And mm -hmm. it really prompted me basically to think deeper about these online sy systems engulfing us and how they shape our perception of reality. 
Yeah, great. And that's all sort of stuff that, you know, we've covered in various forms on this show before, but we haven't talked a lot about the lab leak hypothesis in particular. So I was excited that we could maybe dive into that one mm -hmm. as a kind of case study here a little bit. Um, so you wrote this piece, um, How Algorithmic Curation Breaks Our Brain, which talks yeah. about the lab leak, but sort of puts it in this broader context of a system that you're sort of developing to deal with these sorts of issues. What would you say is the kind of like too long, don't read headline of this article? Yeah, so so what I tried to do basically, I, I tried to identify three critical pieces, what I think are kind of underlying this epistemic crisis. Of course, there are many reasons and also there's a lot of individual reasons how people can get caught up in there. But I, I tried to think from a systemic perspective, what are the three things that apply to all of us, right? And the first one, is basically our human biology, including our cognitive biases and also, you know, how our brain works. This is something uh, that's very interesting, especially when it comes from a machine learning side. Um, mm -hmm. the, the second one is something that also is a bit related to that, which is basically how does social media work? You know, how what are the underlying algorithm? And there's this very interesting concept uh, or heuristic, I, I, I think, uh, is this targeted information as a drug. And how kind of basically, how does this drug shape our perception of reality? And then the mm -hmm. third thing, of course, is also related, uh, again, to the systems uh, of communication and the infosphere around us is basically how, how does this attention economy incentivize basically malicious human behavior like grifting online? So th this are these are the three points, and basically, you know, it, it's still a bit of a psychom-based article, so it's not it's not yet yet published. Um, I found an editor, but now I have to rewrite it a little bit. But the the basic points are are you know mm -hmm. I'm trying to explain and trying to provide a heuristic for people to understand. Hey, this system is something that's unusual, and and we kind of you know the the fix is not in yet, and we have to ourselves kind of bridge that gap to understand what's going on and to just put some of these controversies that are all around us, especially with COVID, into better context. So th mm -hmm. this is basically this was the goal, and you know it's sometimes even bordering a bit on cliches. If you're a social scientist, I'm not telling you anything new about cognitive biases. You know that, right? You know that our brain makes patterns, and you know when the data points are insufficient, we still connect the dots, you know, and the pictures are flawed that we generate. So this is a bit, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and we can talk about that part in a second. Uh, I just want to sort of get clear on what you think is the specific like phenomenon that you think you're explaining with all of this. So is it that like you, you believe you see sort of an increase in internet grifting or grifting more broadly and you're trying to explain like why this yeah. media environment is is creating such a great environment for that behavior so i i think uh there's two things the first thing is i want to give people an idea of you know why our perception of reality gets so flawed and why you know this polarization gets bigger and bigger to a certain extent and you know you feel like we are all kind of we are supposed to live in the same reality and clearly we are not. So why is that happening? And the second mm -hmm. aspect I'm trying to at least address and probably have to work out a bit better is how every item or every topic that will come up in the future that has that, you know, that garners a lot of attention will automatically create a main and the counter narrative and then basically separate in the usual folds, you know, the lowest common denominator folds of left and right or you know conservative mm -hmm. uh, liberal whatever and this is this is basically what this system does right it creates 
this folds and then pushes people down these folds to the to the to the extreme ends and this makes it impossible to find you know either common sense make sense of what is the actual reality and also find you know solutions to the problems facing us right if half of the people let's say you know radicals they don't believe covid is real how are you going to implement a pandemic response so yeah this is this is a bit what i really want to say this is this is not something this is something that the system does to us yeah okay right so yeah there there's this sort of substantial risk of harm i i agree with you i think on a lot of this and i think so let's let's work through and like unpack the pieces of the argument here a little bit so the first part that you sort of said is like uncontroversial a little bit or at least sort of popularly known now as the kind of evo psych element and would you say that you're like broadly sympathetic to this as understood as like an evo psych you know when we were talking about the part of the psychology of our brains mm -hmm. that like is, is is the part of the problem here right it's yeah. something that evolved because it was adaptive to do so so for i think for example you talk about overfitting and dual process theory do you yeah. want to maybe like unpack how those two things play a role in this yes so like I said, I, I come a little bit also from a machine learning background. And, you know, when you, if you ever trained a neural net, you see that they make sometimes, you know, really, really weird mistakes. Um, mm. And, and you know, they usually they fall into certain schemes, like, you know, the data set is biased. So, you know, whatever result you produce is biased or um, you you kind of you you overfit right you have too little data and you get you create a, a, a narrative or you know an explanation that you know fits all the data points but this is because you kind of applied so many parameters that you don't, cannot narrow it down and this is very mm -hmm. similar i feel like to what our brain does like from from an analytical perspective right because if we try to make sense this is critical for our survival to make sense of the world right and mm -hmm. and i think you know there, there is some evolutionary perspective to that. Like I said, you know, pattern recognition plays a huge role, for example, just in vision, you know, and we know of mm -hmm. optical illusions and how easy you can fool visions. But this is something that also probably evolved for a rapid response and not for an accurate response. I think this is the, the main feature that people might not be so aware of. Our brain is highly optimized to quickly reach an actionable um, state, meaning, mm -hmm. you know, reduce confusion to get to an actionable point where I say, okay, now I know what to do and I know to react. And this is probably something that was somewhat selected for, right? Let's say there's, you know, in the grass, you know, you see a shadow uh, and, you know, you don't have enough data point to know if it's, you know, a predator or a lion or whatever, um, mm -hmm, or, mm -hmm. or if it's just, you know, shadow. And you're probably the people that, you know, waited around to get a really accurate assessment, you know, got caught more often than not, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you can apply it to many situations. People that were very bad at estimating, for example, you know, does my neighbor have a weapon, you know, or looking at their face, you know, and judging what are they up to, right? And we, we tend to, you know, reach split second decisions very quickly. And usually they are quite accurate, but not always. And this is, this mm -hmm. is, I think, uh, but this is just what I want to say. This is our biology. This is, we always were like that. And, you know, the last 40,000 years hasn't changed that. What has, what has changed is the technology around us and how we get information into our system, but our system has not fundamentally changed. So, so the main point right. is so, yeah. so we have speed over accuracy is the main point basically. Right. So this thinking fast and slow idea of uh, we have this fast processing mechanism yes. and generally everything that I've looked at has been like, we want to try to help people 
move away from the thinking fast system to the thinking slow system when they're making important decisions and stuff like yeah. that right and so, yeah but like yeah the, the internet right the social media is pushing everybody in the opposite direction so how does that like pressure system work in this in this environment so this is very interesting i think there's there's many elements to this first i feel like you know because internet, you know, it's the outreach machine, right? So it anyways engages our more emotional and not so much our analytical facilities. So we are already kind of in a state of, you know, where we want to judge, where we want to comment, where we want to be entertained and not so much in a, you know, every post that I share, like, it's not like, hmm, is it really appropriate? Does it take, you know, let me take five minutes to think if I want to like this or not. This is usually not how it, how it is, right? So this whole incentivization mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is towards, you know, reaching an actionable conclusion, like mean, being fast. It's like, you know, do I want to like it? Do I want to spread, mm-hmm. uh, share it? Or do I want to comment on it, right? So this is this is the incentivization. And this is also the, a bit of the addictive addictive part and we will come later to that um, of this whole system so it wants us to basically reach a quick actionable solution whether we like it whether we click on it uh, and doesn't want us to just you know deliver it uh, about it so much Mm -hmm. this is I mean this is a fascinating psychological reality for me personally like when we think about just looking at the behavior of engagement with something like Twitter, which I'm I'm highly addicted to, right? And yeah. I, you know, I'm on there scrolling and like, but I'm making really complicated decisions in a sense, right? Like yes. why I choose to retweet something versus like it versus comment on, as you were just saying, right? Mm-hmm. It has to do with a really complicated network of judgments about like, what does this content mean in relation to other content that I provide? You know, what are the reactions going to be if I deal with it in different kinds of ways, right? So like our brains are impressive at being able to like quickly rewire into a new environment in that Mm -hmm. kind of way. And I don't even think that's necessarily a bad thing, right? Like I think it's important to note that like if the incentive structures are better designed, it's not necessarily a problem that our minds get rewired in these kinds of ways. It's only if they're being sort of incentivized into particularly harmful kinds of rewiring, right? Yeah. So in principle, I agree, right? I mean, I, 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 like most people, you know, believe there's a huge upside to, you know, having more information at hand. But of course, it's a signal to noise ratio. And if the noise is, you know, overwhelming any signal, then it can be even worse than having less information uh, mm-hmm. in certain contexts, right? Um, uh, a little bit to your other point. So you you were saying, you know, you, you make a lot of complex decisions very fast. And so this is the question that I have maybe to you is, um, you know, how, how, how is it, for example, when you're feeling tired or when you're feeling, mm-hmm. you know, emotionally outraged, you, you might still think that you, you apply the same um, quality of judgment to all of them. But in the end, most of it, most of social media signaling is anyway, you know, in-group signaling and, you know, you provide content mm-hmm. or, you know, you mm-hmm. know what your audience wants and you're, you know, it's a no-brainer in that sense because you've trained your brain so often by what you share to just share what is a no-brainer. But, you know, just because something might work well with your audience doesn't mean that the information contained in it is accurate. And this is a bit mm-hmm. of the issue in every aspect. And this is also, I think later you, you, we're going to talk a bit about misinformation and disinformation. I think we all, and censorship, we are all spreading misinformation unintentionally many times, or, you know, even if it's not misinformation, you know, specifically because it's not necessarily inaccurate, it might be incomplete in a certain context that, you know, given that 
you switch between different audiences and who might see it, right? With the quote tweets and then another audience get it. And then you basically provide straw mans for other people. So it's a lot of complex dynamics going mm -hmm. into this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's tricky. And it, like, <laughs> there are various techniques that I feel like I've been trying to apply, especially like as you gain followers, I think you have a higher responsibility to be mm -hmm. better about your online behavior in these kinds yeah. of ways. And so... Um, yeah, I think well, let's hold off for one second talking about like those different kinds of personal versus systems level solutions. Um, and I just want to sort of unpack a little bit more the theory side of yep. your Absolutely. approach. So you mentioned heuristics here and heuristics mm -hmm. is a term that comes up a lot these days. Everybody's talking about like, you know, how our brain mm -hmm. uses these kinds of shortcuts. Um, but I think there can often be a lot of like not clarity necessarily about what we mean by this. So what do you mean when you talk about a heuristic in this context? Does mm -hmm. it go beyond just, like you were saying earlier, the way that our brain takes, you know, coincidences and fits mm -hmm. them into a narrative, whether they need to be fitted into a narrative or not? So uh, maybe I have to clarify. So I'm not a social scientist. I don't have the same maybe connotations and the same background uh, and the same depth of knowledge about this. So I'm trying to be careful uh, when we talk about this, that this is a bit colored from, you know, uh, how I see it. And there might be, you know, better um, models or more established models out there. So maybe uh, it, it's worth clarifying. So for me, when I talk about heuristics, I don't mean it in a negative or positive uh, connotation. For me, heuristic just means, um, as I explained earlier, it's about, you know, um, having a, a model that might not be, you know, uh, the most accurate, but a very fast one with a pretty good success rate, right? For mm -hmm. any matter when you make a decision, right? Like when they say, you know, uh, I don't know, do I share this or do I not? People, you you might have a heuristic that, you know, uh, that you apply, but, you know, there, there might be cases where this heuristic is false. And I think, you know, and this is, um, I think everybody knows about this, right? We, we wouldn't function without heuristics, right? We cannot always be all up in our head. We need heuristics, mm -hmm. you know, uh, to to have the, 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 the cognitive capacity to really, you know, uh, when there's a complex problem to have the analytical facilities to do it, we, we have to basically be on autopilot the rest of the time. And, right. the, and the, the goal is never to get rid of basically, you know, our heuristics. The, the goal is to make our heuristics as good as possible to reflect our reality and, you know, know when to kick up the problem to our an analytical facilities and otherwise be good enough that, it, that you don't cause, you know, systematic errors constantly on on the same type of problems or issues that you're facing and this is a bit what i uh what i try to say when when i talk about heuristics so it's not good or bad mm -hmm. i just want to say that you know we are all using them it's normal but the problem is if we get bad data in into our system then our heuristics will necessarily be bad heuristics for whatever decision we are making and this is and mm -hmm. this is very this is amplified i think by social media to a certain extent, right. because social media, by definition, through this targeted information that we get through ranking algorithms and, you know, all the dynamics attached to that is by definition a very kind of weird picture of reality, a very distorted picture of the slower reality we would face by, you know, uh, having a geographic bubble around us and everybody's a bit different in social media. We sure. all get, uh, it, we, we all get filtered into these echo bubbles. Uh, echo chambers very quickly uh, and this distorts our perception of reality and so all the heuristics we develop in these echo chambers on social media are mm -hmm. very likely 
to be very bad uh, heuristics, meaning we will always make the same systematic thinking errors when using these heuristics and not take the time to, you know, analytically run through each individual instance of that particular issues all over again, right? And this is, I think this is, this explains a lot of the culture warrior um, kind of phenotype we see, we see online, right? Because we have our heuristics, what, you know, what the other say when they, uh, or mean when they say certain things. And then even when the other person, you know, just uses a, a word that, you know, uh, it, it triggers mm -hmm. our heuristic, you know, if I, if somebody says, for example, racist, if you go from the woke type, then immediately you trigger the heuristics, you know, what to look out for, for racists, what is racist behavior? How do they talk? What else can I identify, you know, if they're racist or not, right? And, and these heuristics, they, they lead to systematic thinking errors because they are too plain. They don't take the whole breadth of, you know, what the context is necessarily into account. And this can be an issue, especially in this echo chambers. So yeah, that was right. a very long-winded yeah. answer. <laughs> no, no. And I think there's a couple of good points in there that I want to highlight. So I think it's a really useful lens to think about the way that part of what social media does when it when it's doing that thing of like getting us to think too fast and overreact or something like that, that, that what it's really good at is knowing what our heuristics are and short circuiting them, right? Like it's taking advantage and, and it like the algorithms are very good at figuring out here's how people are acting heuristically. Here's <laughs> how we can maximize reactions based on that heuristic or something like that effectively. So I think that's one good point there. A specific example of that that I think is really important for our discussion of like the guru IDW type stuff is the short circuiting of the expertise heuristic in particular. So yeah. I think it's important the way that so a lot of what you're talking about is heuristics on the individual psychological level, right? The parts mm -hmm. of our brains that make us go faster in this kind of way, one of which it, for us is, is this kind of expertise heuristic where we use social signals and use a bunch of other signals mm -hmm. to like tell us who the experts are to rely on when we're forming our beliefs. Um, and I think you see a lot of short-circuiting of that by media environments and like specifically targeted kinds of approaches. Um, one other thing that I want to add in here and I want to get your thoughts on this is I was actually, it's funny that you brought this all up because I was just today reading a book called true enough, which is essentially an argument for um, functional um, false falsehoods. I don't think they call it something like that. Yeah. Right. Or, or felicitous falsehoods, right. This idea that like science itself is based on heuristics that are mostly false, right. Or all <laughs> false or something like that. Right. Like yeah. all of our models. And this is a classic phrase, right. All models are false. Some of them are useful. Um, mm -hmm. So like, I, I do think it's important to note that um, I, I think it's important to note this from a psychom perspective, because a lot of people have this idea that, you know, heuristics are something that we as fallible humans use, but science is somehow achieving a state above that where it's not relying on those sorts of things. And then they're really let down when they get like these incomplete or, you know, like imperfect models or things like that from science communication. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, like I said, a heuristic is nothing good or bad. It really depends on, you know, um, how, how how good is it useful right or is it harmful to a certain extent right mm -hmm. and and i think you know usually our brain and our you know whatever evolved in our brain the, the neuromechanisms that we don't fully yet grasp you know they they, they found a good 
they found a good switch between, you know, figuring out what can run on heuristics and when do we need to, you know, get a bit confused and use our analytical facility, right? And now, mm. um, given that our information sphere switched, um, I think that there needs to be a kind of either an update so that people have to kind of learn how to use a better heuristics and not take, you know, what social media says or does as the actual reality and you know mm -hmm. or, or figure out you know ways how to 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 navigate that better or just you know disengage more and and you know slow things down maybe even through beneficial algorithmic design and we can talk about uh how that could yeah. look like also um so so this is something that 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 is one one critical aspect uh of it and uh yeah sorry maybe continue no i, th I mean I think it's all good i didn't like I, I guess I lean, I get, I've got, I become increasingly skeptical of individual based, you know, choice based solutions to these kinds of problems because, and partly because of the sort of analysis that I, I want to hear from you more about now, which is, you know, you, you describe social media as a targeted information drug, which I think is, is just right. Accurate. I think like you're clearly looking at a controlled substance that people are like myself addicted to in various degrees. Yeah. Um, and so my first question with something like that is, you know, given that our society doesn't currently treat this as the controlled substance that it is, do you mm -hmm. think that there needs to be regulation of social media as an addictive substance? Should there be sort of limits on things like quantity or potency? Um, you know, should we require that mm -hmm. companies, you know, like not optimize for engagement full stop? Like how far are you committed to this idea this model as you know drug as substance uh, in this way so yes um so I, I lay a little bit out in the article but um i think there is many uh, who share this idea that you know social media is addictive i think this is uncontroversial at this point um, we have both epidemiological studies that show this we both we also have you know um studies from the biochemistry, like showing that, you know, how the dopamine system in our brain uh, lights up and dopamine system, of course, is is what it's a reward system in our brain. It is also lights up when you use, you know, other drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, whatever. So this is very clear that, that physiologically um, it, it causes an addiction. Um, mm -hmm. And, and, you know, the thing is, it's not regulated, right? And because it's not regulated, uh, there needs to be some kind of, you know, consumer protection standpoint somewhere or a public health standpoint to put somewhere. I'm not saying, you know, I know exactly where to draw that line. What I'm saying is mm -hmm. currently we don't have a line. And, you know, we've seen the Facebook papers, the recent relevation, uh, for example, that, you know, Instagram actually harms teenage girls you know there's like mm -hmm. an harm and then of course especially when it goes against minors that might not be capable of making uh, these decisions for themselves you know girls as young as you know 13 14 very susceptible to bulimia to you know weird body images to body dysmorphia uh you know wanting to get plastic surgery to look like the snapchat filter something like that there clearly has to something has to happen here right we don't we don't sell alcohol uh to to 12 year olds 14 year olds whatever and the social media you know they they just go there because you know people don't experience it as a harmful product and i think there needs to be mm -hmm. some at least some consumer protection uh, and then of course you know the the more interesting part i think what what people um maybe are less aware is that you know on a societal level the process of you know getting you know customized or targeted information 
to people, we, we don't really understand what this does to us. So this mm-hmm. is something that is really, and, and this is also a problem, you know, technology works usually faster than the scientists studying it uh, and sure. studying its effects after. And the right. scientists are not even done studying the effects. I mean, now increasingly we see more papers coming in science, you know, reporting harm. But the problem is, you know, you, you need... What, what you kinds know, of harm? Like increases in narcissism or like what are we talking about here <laughs> so i mean there's uh, there's like psychological um harm from you know uh, like, like i mentioned um from depression mm-hmm. to anxieties there is mm-hmm. um there's also you know report on productivity from you know how capable are we of holding our attention i mean so multitasking for mm-hmm. example and all these yeah. things they don't work right we we just lose focus and you know how people get disrupted then it has physiological effects when it comes to how much it perturbs our sleeping patterns um Mm. and but these are all this is i think the main problem i want to make we are not there yet in the science Mm -hmm. to get the complete picture putting everything together because the the problem is (laughs) (laughs) there is so many different aspects to this right there's there's the the biology Mm -hmm. the neurobiology there is the the sociology there is uh, (laughs) there is you know the, the the actual kind of you know the companies have the data and they are not even sharing most of the data so how can independent researchers be expected to get a good general framework of what is going wrong and what is happening mm-hmm. to us if we don't even have access to all the data right and so mm-hmm. we can only do very narrow studies we can only look look they have a cohort that you know that uses a lot of social media here's a cohort that uses it less you know and then you know what are the difference between them it's very hard to find cause causation uh patterns could sure. also be correlation could be a multitude of other factors it's a bit like nutrition right you don't really know i so, know i'm looking forward to the study that's going to absolutely prove that the mix of social media and COVID has destroyed my ability to focus on anything yeah um, so that's, that's gonna be forthcoming yeah. if not already published um, probably so let me yeah yeah please go, please well, go. Let, me, let me ask you you sort of convey this, I think, in the article as a kind of universal diagnosis in a sense that, like, this is an account of the problem of Internet, right? And, like, mm-hmm. do you feel that this is a account that, like, you know, there's detailed differences, but functionally speaking, this is the same problem that's driving cancel culture as that's driving QAnon, for example? Yeah, so th- this is an interesting question. Um I think the short answer would be yes. <laughs> of mm-hmm. course, there are individual differences, and there's also, you know, differences in how far detached certain things are from reality. But the mm-hmm. driving mechanisms that feed into something are the same. And uh, you know, I, I think a bit of a difference might be that um, uh, I feel like on on certain issues, you know, the the attention is 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 very strongly focused or you know allows or certain let's put it certain narratives allow for very large um kind of similar thinking people to to kind of needlessly fall into it whereas others are not as uh, and as interesting and thus don't capture as many people so i think vogueness for example is still a smaller cult that not many subscribe to the, the mm-hmm. radical part of wokeness. I mean, I'm, this is also something that's very differ, difficult to detach, right? Not everybody mm-hmm. who is anti-establishment is is crazy. Not everybody that thinks, you know, there should be equity and, you know, we, we should be careful how we display, you know, uh, um, minorities is necessarily subscribing to the woke thing. But the problem is, mm-hmm. you know, this nuance also gets, you know, 
separated out and then people get pushed further and further to you know to the most radical kind of examples because this is what right. the, this is also and this is interesting i think from a computer scientist perspective this is what the algorithms do to us right they did not just further and further apart because they want to stratify us right the point of the algorithms is they want to stratify us as accurately as possible and thus they deliver us mm-hmm. um this information pieces that you know in order to nudge us to you know buy into this piece buy into this piece and then i can better sort you into that group and and so how much right. you know how much is this polarization that we see and this echo chambers really reflective of you know original belief and how much is it reflective of people being nudged constantly by the information pieces around them to fall more and more into this isolated powers just because the algorithms then have a better time delivering us to the advertisers right so okay I buy that as a sort of universal diagnosis. And then I think the next question to me that's important is how do we explain what seems to be the asymmetrical distribution of severity, right? So like this stuff (laughs) is happening in all communities, but like, as you say, you know, QAnon is a different world from cancel culture or something like that, or like wokeness or something Mm -hmm. like that in terms of, and, and that like, it seems to me, and I want to hear your perspective on this as a non-American, because I know that this all becomes very American-centric very easily. Okay. But like in my world, there's a pretty like clear political problem involving the right sort of abandoning democracy and reason and like like basic science all at the same time over the course of like the past 60 or 70 years or something. But like, what do you see as the like driving forces? If there, if you do see an asymmetrical distribution of the like conspiracism, grifty kind of stuff. Yeah. So I, I, to be honest, I don't, I don't know. I have, mm-hmm. I, I can offer you, you know, a speculation and one of these speculations. Speculate wildly. That's what we're here for. <laughs> um, one of the speculations I have is that um, certain narratives on the right are, um, how should I put it? They maybe maybe people are more susceptible to the right, uh, like like the, the the personality of people that want to preserve something that feel you know uh, mm-hmm. they are losing something that feel more easily threatened. Maybe these people are a bit easier to target. So this could be one explanation. And then you know, especially if you have a power change like you had in the US, now you know it's the the Democrats in power again. You know that just fuels uh, these anxieties, and then people make all these bad decisions while being anxious and get nudged into this radical alternative reality that feels safer to them. So this could be a more psychological explanation. Another mm-hmm. explanation could be that maybe the narratives are better in the sense that, you know, they find common denominator, common denominator narratives that a lot of the right can buy into. Because if you think about mm-hmm. it, on the left, I feel like you have a lot of also, you know, crazy narratives, but each of them is a smaller tent because, you know, uh, mm. I think the, le- the left eats itself, right? And nobody wants to uh, kind of be in the same tent as the others. Everybody wants their own individual kind of um, uh, right. pet philosophy. There's, there's, le- there's a sense that like that it hasn't been sort of organized vertically in the way that like yes. the right at this point feels and on like. And on, on the right, I feel like, you know, the, the, there is, there's a bit more attractive narratives that a lot of people can buy into. Right. And, and I, I think the common thread you see a lot on the right is, is this first this existential angst for, you know, whatever was that they thought is, is, you know, the, the core of, 
of of that needs to be preserved. I mean, could be you know morally, politically, um, even racially. Um, so this is one mm -hmm. thing, and and this paired with a certain anti-establishment uh, sentiment. Um, I feel also this this is something that all the narratives on the right have this strong anti-establishment sentiment, right? It doesn't matter if it's, you know, starting from cryptocurrencies to lab leak to, you know, COVID vaccines to uh, mm -hmm, ivermectin, mm -hmm. you know, no matter what you want to sell on the right, you have to sell it with a with, with this anti-establishment spin in order from, you know, that you get all the people from all these networks that are very connected. On the left is a bit more difficult, I feel like, because the narratives you have, you have maybe the, the you know, anti-capitalist uh, conspiracies uh, people, they, they don't do very well, you know, being in a tent with the people that, you know, are not keen on anti-Semitic tropes, for example, right? <laughs> so, well, I, yeah, I, yeah. The, the authoritarianism thing is very interesting because there was, you know, there's, there was data that probably didn't necessarily reproduce about like people on the right being more type A or being more like sympathetic to authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. And then you have folks like Jonathan Haidt, who seem to suggest that like conservative moral values you mm -hmm. know involve valuing authority more highly than liberal values or valuing them more as an end themselves mm -hmm. rather than as a means to an end compared to sort of liberal approaches to it um and what i think i feel like you really do see on the right at the moment a very kind of selective anti-authoritarianism right it's you know we're they're pro-trump they're pro-orban like they're pro-bosonaro mm -hmm. they're pro-authoritarians but they're anti sort of authority in a you know like as, as some folks have mentioned recently that it almost feels very Foucauldian that they've kind of adopted mm -hmm. this critique of the elites the the experts or something like that and obviously that comes from again in my world the decades of you know um this uh, the, uh, decades of attacking right science and treating it as the enemy and like treating it as like this tool that's being used to dismantle, as you say, these things that we value and such. Yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah, I think there's a lot of that going on there. Yeah, um, like I said, it's also, if you think about, you know, other countries in Europe, you know, we, every country has a right-wing party that's basically like the Republican Party buying into the same narrative, su suggesting the same things uh, mm -hmm. about ivermectin, about, you know, lab leaks and stuff like that. Even, you know, in my home country, in Austria and Switzerland, we, we have a sizable chunk of people that are susceptible to these. Um, and on the left, you also have a ultra-left-wing party uh, that is, right. you know, uh and and they are usually smaller too so the question is you know is this a reflective of a general mood is this a reflective of a generational thing is this right. reflective of you know uh something that social media does or is it the americans that you know uh push it into the rest of the world to an extent because i mean it's crazy to me that you have clearly us. Two we're parties. obviously the most important so like <laughs> clearly we're just exporting all this no and it, like i also have questions about like is part of the problem that like it's worse in America because we're this two party system. And so if one of those parties goes really far off the rails, that's a big problem for everybody, especially when they can maintain a minority rule in a large part of our government and like lock down our ability to legislate. Um, let's, let's shift gears though away from the politics stuff. Uh, you, you talked, as you said, primarily about the lab leak hypothesis as kind of a perfect storm for conspiracism. Do you want to lay out what you see as like the factors that like made that a particular situation that was just going to, because like, I, I think I feel like I had lots of people at the same time, look at that groan and go, this is never going to go away as a conspiracy ever. Yeah. 
So this is something uh, that also is, is a phenomenon that I think is very interesting. I feel like, you know, every area of attention um, uh, that, we, that we will face will develop counter-narratives. So we know that, right? And then the question is, you know, um, do these counter-narratives hold uh, or, or, or do they eventually vanish away, right? And the interesting part about the lab leak is uh, because there's an actual kind of, you know, um, uncertainty, a scientific uncertainty, the, the, mm -hmm. the facts and the, the evidence is inconclusive to, you know, discard all different uh, lab leak scenarios or prove any sonotic scenarios. And this is also, um, maybe I can take just two minutes to to kind of widen the spectrum a bit so when we talk sure. about um origins of covid the problem is on social media it's too narrative right it came from a lab or it came from zoonosis but in reality you know there's like 10 different options on on, on you know mm -hmm. how it could happen in zoonosis you know was it from the wild market with an animal was it from an animal trader was it from a fur farm you know was it from scientists sampling cases in wuhan and you know in, unintentionally uh catching it was it for them bringing back back the bats and you know uh catch uh, uh extracting it from pet poo and then you know it leaked from the lab or was it you know delivered engineering was it um was it a passage experiment that went wrong? Was it, you know, a bioweapon, right? All these different scenarios exist there in the space and not all scenarios are crazy. This is the next thing. But, you know, of course, people that are on the Sonosis side will say, you know, all the lab leakers talk about, you know, uh, bioweapons and the Chinese, Chinese did this intentionally. And, you know, and this is all racist conspiracy, which of course is not an accurate reflection of the reality. There are even, you know, very uh, prominent scientists that say, hey, we don't know for sure. A lab leak could have happened. This is, you know, an option that I see here and there, and this is the evidence for it. On the other hand, uh, on the lab leak side, right, they have this big, you know, ah, the establishment is trying to suppress us. The scientists never really looked into a lab leak, which is also not the case, there's no evidence for it. Or, you know, Fauci and Daszak tried to suppress everything, look at this letter, and then, you and then you know, nobody from the scientists saw the letter, there's still the studies were being done. So there's a lot, a lot of complicated nuance to the whole thing, just because there is a scientific uncertainty and we cannot reach 100% certainty either way. And, mm -hmm. and actually I'm working on a new um, article, which is about, you know, how can we, you know, find an actionable certainty in the sense, even though we don't have absolute certainty, how can we, you know, find an actionable solution? Because nobody, no lab leaker and no um, uh, zoonotic uh, um, scientist mm -hmm. or whatever favors another pandemic, right? And I think everybody should move on a little bit from, you know, this controversy, because even if this didn't leak from the lab, there is a real risk that it could leak from the lab. So there is some common sense um, transparency uh, and research protocols and questions to be asked. Legitimate, mm -hmm. absolutely legitimate. On the other hand, you know, saying, ah, you know, something like SARS-CoV-2 could only be, you know, a, a Chinese plot to a certain extent or, you know, something evil scientists cooked up. This is just, you know, detached from reality. Absolutely. We've seen constantly, you know, new viruses spawning out of this, of the uh, gain of functional labo laboratory in nature. And we just have to act. And it's not the first one that came from a Chinese. Um, it's not the first SARS, right? It's the second SARS right. that came from a Chinese uh, wet market. And these practices still being there is just something we don't necessarily need, right? Uh, why? Why would we need that? Why would we allow for this further encroaching? 
And on the lab leak side, you know, why do we have to have this big virology labs in the middle of a city? Why not have them a bit further apart, right? So right. there's there's let me, there's reasonable takes on 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 all sides, yeah. Yeah, let me. I want to ask you about the one piece of that where, like, I think you and I agree on so many things, but like, I was trying to find something to sort of push back a little bit on yeah. the, in this article, and like, you do sort of say in the article, like, the whole things started when the establishment claimed the lab leak conspiracy is racist. And I guess by your own sort of analysis of the inevitability of the co-opting of mm -hmm. every topic into grifterhood, I'm not sure that that's even avoidable as a reality. Like, I'm not sure that like anybody is responsible. Like, I guess I want to say when you talk about that, someone might get the impression that you're saying, you know, the media is partly to blame for talking about the relation, the racial elements of this. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me that the reality is even if the media just correctly identifies that Donald Trump talking about it as the, you know, the Wuhan flu and like making it about race, right? Like yeah. is a problem that then gets co-opted into see they're calling it a racist conspiracy. Like no one has to literally say it's a racist conspiracy for people to hear that and infer that and then turn that into part of that kind of grift mill. Do you think that there's like any way to avoid like those elements, like the, the, the sort of culture worry <laughs> elements becoming part of the formula of every one of these grifts as they yeah. you know shift into grifthood so uh the short answer is i agree with you uh, i think the lab leak controversy was unavoidable um mm -hmm. but I, I still think that the whole trump and media dynamic they they hypercharged it basically right and and i mean it mm -hmm. has geopolitical effects right part of the reason why china is so incooperative was because of of this you know geopolitical stunts that trump and the media together you know in concert cooked up and of course they themselves are a product of this attention economy. I mean, Trump, I mean, for all mm -hmm, his for sure. insanity, right? What he was really capable at was, you know, holding the attention of people, right? And <laughs> this was something that he was incredible at. Uh, I don't know how he could uphold, you know, having an outrage uh, every, every, every other day, right? I mean, it was insane. And I think he is partly responsible for creating the, the, the ground interest in what should be a kind of detracted scientific question right is ah uh, you know what is the nuance of it let the scientists investigate right but because he put it kind of in the spotlight you created this customer base for then this whole cottage industry of conspiracy theorists cooking up you know all these different narratives without any evidence right without any mm -hmm, good evidence mm -hmm. basis and of course uh the question is is then also you know ah uh, but otherwise the scientists would not have investigated the oranges properly or lab leaks properly and this is something that i don't think is true this is also mm -hmm. something that feeds into this, you know, anti-establishment sentiment. Other scientists don't listen to us just because it came from Trump. And yeah, so this is this is a little bit how I see that it. it was unavoidable. Uh -huh. But but also, uh, let me say a few words against the media because, I mean, it's a podcast and people love uh, shouting against <laughs> established media. <laughs> so While being on the media, yeah, go for it. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, the media... Uh, why I mentioned the media has to do with the simple fact that they kind of invented this counter narrative that anybody who blames China must be racist. I mean, let's be clear, the virus came from China and more likely than not, their practices with wildlife trade allowed for SARS-CoV-2 to unfold, right? And and it still poses a significant global threat. You know, saying that plainly does not make you necessarily a racist. And kind of, you know, pushing mm -hmm. this counter narrative just because Trump might be racist or, you know, there's good evidence that he actually holds some very racist ideas doesn't mean that everybody 
on the scientific question that disagrees or holds a different hypothesis, a hypothesis falls into the same racist narrative. And this is why I say the media is not innocent on that one, right? Because mm-hmm. what, what would be the alternative, right? Instead of doing the attention grabbing, you know, virtue signaling with racist, you know, racist word, racist conspiracy, they could have just, what they could have done was just, you know, uh, do a nuanced coverage about the scientific uncertainty, explain the scientific uncertainty, right? Again and again, if it has to be. But of course, this doesn't generate the clicks. What generates the clicks is calling everybody racist, right? And then putting mm. stories on how Asian Americans get disparaged by, you know, uh, rednecks and all these kind of things. So obviously, there is an unhealthy dynamic because people want clicks because of this attention economy and the mainstream plays the game exactly the same as the anti-establishment grifters to a certain extent. They have to, right? Yeah. Otherwise I mean, they wouldn't I, survive. I, think, survive. They I, only I could do- at least yeah. try to like, I could at least try to defend them and say sure. like, you know, that I'm, I'm, I'm like, I, I think you're right that there obviously is a segment that like, here, here's a chance for us to call Trump racist. Let's get on that, right? Like that's probably like clearly that writes itself as an article. Yeah. Um, but I also think there's probably an argument to be made that like what you're leaning into there is the kind of information deficit model where it's like don't don't deal with the emotional side mm-hmm. of this conversation. Just focus on the facts, and that'll that'll correct. And there's mm-hmm. I think there's good reason to be skeptical that that approach is as actually effective at a lot of things. And there might be something to be said for the idea that like. Yes, it is true. Like, like if it if it seems true, right, that this uh, framing of these issues does lead to increased harm against Chinese individuals, people identified mm-hmm. as as being connected to it in some kind of way. That like centering that and making that the the thrust of you know your argument mm-hmm. for why you shouldn't argue for the lab leak hypothesis might be a better and not like disingenuous model at all for tamping down on this conspiracism without getting into the weeds with conspiracists about like, you know, whatever y'all talk about. Like I I can't even like spike Mm. proteins or some shit, like, you know, (laughs) which is just not helpful to the vast majority of human beings who just need to know like, what what should my heuristic be about the lab leak? And it should be, it probably wasn't from a lab. And the people who talk about that too much might be doing so for political reasons. Yeah. And see, this is exactly the issue, right? And how could, could we escape this uh, take from happening because you know let's mm-hmm. say you have 100 mainstream media outlets and 90 of them report you know accurately and and as uh, responsibly as they can the 10 that don't that right. you know make the emotional right. points they are the one that will get the salience on social media and get amplified and they are the one shaping the narrative right so we because, can't test it right it's an untestable yeah. hypothesis i'll give you yeah. that so yeah, for sure <laughs> so but yeah, but, I mean, yeah but like i i guess i wonder at least <laughs> Well, so let's, let's talk about policy, right? We're almost out of time here, but I want to spend a little bit of time and then we can talk about that maybe in some more in the bonus as well. But like, let me just throw out some policy things that I think are valuable and I want to hear what your responses are to them. So at the personal level, you know, I do think there's a value in a kind of cool down period when it comes to posting. Like if you see some hot new story, wait 48 hours and then comment on it. And like in that 48 hours, it will very likely either be discredited or substantiated further and like but that you know that comes with costs to brand building and things like that right if you're behind the the trends you're not getting as much attention or something like that so that's that's the personal level at the at the sort of systemic level at this point i just think that people like alex jones james Lindsay should just not be on social media that there's just not 
enough of a benefit to cost ratio to to sort of continue to allow so like what is your approach for short-circuiting this inevitable grifter problem like if you think everything is going to be co-opted how do we how do we break that cycle essentially <laughs> i mean i I think we can't, right? Uh, at mm -hmm. least there is no there is no easy fix. Let let's put it like that, right? Because, um, like like we mentioned before, right? We are all spreading misinformation, often unwittingly, mm -hmm. right? We all spread our distorted perception of reality somewhere, and we all have our own identity signals and want to reach our audience and you know share certain messages. So we all contribute to a bad infosphere, and it's gonna be very difficult. Just to saying, you know, we always cut off the top of the worst of the worst. I mean, I think we should do it. I have okay. no, I have no troubles, and I think it's good that you know people like Trump got banned. He should have been banned earlier, and also Alex Jones and Joe Rogan and all these kind of people that you know, wittingly or not, uh, mm -hmm. keep spreading dangerous misinformation. You know, irresponsibly, mm -hmm. I think they should be cut off. Um, but of course, the the issue that you have is that you you you, you play whack a mole because you know the reason mm. why these people are there in the first place is because they are willing to you know feed into the counter narratives that the people want to hear. To a certain they extent. provide or, the content that the social media companies need to keep us there, right? Exactly. And if you you know if you if you kick off the Alex Joneses, you know there will be there, there will be the next Jones brother coming up and doing exactly the same thing to fill that niche, right? Because this is the thing. It incentive it's incentivized, right? The system needs the the social media system needs two opposites. It needs to create two warring factions that constantly are at each other's throat because only then the engagement is as high as it can be right if you just mm -hmm. say okay hey there's a lot to agree on this issue you know let's uh, agree to disagree and move on and you know have a good day this is not gonna go viral what's gonna go viral is you know calling one a nazi and the other one a racist and then let's go right you know so uh, yeah yeah so what do you think then about like legally requiring social media to be less engaging to be like look, your algorithm can pick out the most engaging content. You know that it's rage bait. So now your mm -hmm. algorithm has to downvote that. Like it has to hide that content or something. And like, obviously you're going to have, everything's going to feed back into the narrative in terms of conspiracists are going to mm -hmm. say they're being silenced. So you're never going to avoid that problem. But like, it seems like they could identify, they can clearly identify what the worst of the worst is. And they could, they could not show it to people as much. And like, they'll get pushback for it and they'll lose market share mm -hmm. or something like that. But like, should we be requiring them to do that? Do you think we should be making them muck up their own sort of profit model, essentially? Absolutely. <laughs> so I, I, I think there is no good reason why companies should be allowed to make undue and unholy profits and cause, you know, uh, externalities, right? We've seen how bad this is with all companies, right? Because we just paid for the oil they sold and not for the damage the the, the gas has caused, right? Uh, uh, the CO2 causes and you know to say we had to regulate other industries too you know chemical factories that you know dump their leftover in the river and pollute the river right we have to make sure that whatever product the company is selling they are you know they the externalities are covered by whatever they are mm -hmm. doing and mm -hmm. or, or cigarettes right you know people sell cigarettes but then who, who's going to pay for, to treat all those lung cancer patients right so we we always cause a lot of harm when we have kind of companies that learn to maximize their profit and outsource 
the externalities and the harm and the costs mm-hmm. to the society, right? Because then they extract value from the society and just, you know, accumulate more value for their shareholders and themselves. So mm. I don't see yeah. a good reason to say, you know, hey, these companies, you know, uh, they, they have to run maximum profit no matter the external costs. I don't think so. And I think uh, the problem we always have is, of course, identifying the external costs. And this is also why I said, you know, the science is, not even yet there, how can we expect our regulators to be there uh, if mm-hmm. even the science hasn't even established what are all the externalities of what they have created? Mm-hmm. And, you know, so there, there's different approaches to this and uh, there's historical precedent too, right? Some of these platforms, you know, could become public utility, right? And then, you know, it's not mm-hmm. necessarily a profit motive. Uh, so then, you know, if they are public utility that are for the social good, then, you know, they should optimize for that. And that can even cost the taxpayer something, right? If you have to run, let's say, a Facebook or a Twitter based on taxpayer money, then at least, uh, you know, make it make it worthwhile. Now, basically... Mm-hmm. Pe- you know, people are using it and all the value goes to Mark Zuckerberg and it causes so mm-hmm. much damage that we cannot even fathom how much damage it causes, especially if you, you know, put uh, the climate change or other uh, things on top of that, right? Because, right. I mean, this is the insane thing if you think about it. Companies like Exxon have spent, you know, 30, 40 years poisoning the minds of a certain pop- small but, you know, significant part of the American public to block legislation for climate action, right? And they spent billions doing that, right? And now social media does this worldwide for free, basically, right? Mm-hmm. Just because mm-hmm. of these algorithms and you need to have two polarizing narratives. Some people say, oh, there's a climate change. So what is the polarizing narrative? Climate change is not real. You know, it's all climate right. hysteria or Greta Thunberg is, you know, behind everything, whatever it is, right? It's... And, and this is the problem, right? Because we have this system that creates this polarizing opposites, no matter how inaccurate these opposites might be. One might be, you know, a very good reflection of reality and one might be the opposite or both might be, you know, somewhat reflective of reality, but nowhere close either. Because we have to polarize in order to drive engagement, we will always be wrong, right? Mm-hmm. To a certain extent, okay. because either we don't get everybody on board or we will be fighting about things instead of finding conclusions based on the actual reality. And this is, I think, mm-hmm. uh, the real issue that we find. Yeah, I think that's a great point. So we gotta, we're got we going to wrap it up there. Um, let me ask you real quick, something I'd, I'd like to end before I torture everybody. Are there resources that you have found particularly valuable in your sense-making journey, let's say, that, you know, when you did all your own research, um, that you recommend to folks who are trying to understand these problems that we're dealing with? Um. I, I can't say that uh, I have a good uh, way to do so. I can provide some sources, but what I would say is that um, even I'm already too broad. I think what would be important if people are really interested in it, you know, start with the science, start with what people already know, because the major issue I see, and including myself, you know, people tend to, you know, come up with their own pet theories before they even look, you know, what is ground reality. And Still, we need science to establish that ground reality and then, you know, start start from there. So, uh, yeah, just try to be serious about it and, you know, um, um, start at establishing what is real without, you know, try to be as impassioned about it as well. <laughs> oh, you're you're going to regret saying that in about three seconds. All right. Um, all right. So, yes, let's figure out what is real. Here we go. Uh, this is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. 
So for folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things and you're going to tell me, are these things real or not real? Those are your only options. You don't get to hedge. You don't get to explain what you mean by real or not real. Oh, God. Okay. All right. Are you ready? Yeah. Binary answers are never accurate of reality, but go. <laughs> yes. Welcome to welcome to the torture chamber. Um, first of all, let me ask, is anything real? Yes. Okay, great. So let's find out what is real. I know you're confused. It's a philosophy show. We have to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, so first of all, the external world, real or not real? Yes, it's real. Real. Okay. Yeah, but the, our perception of it, of course, is limited. Not, not, okay. Colors, real or not real? Not real. Phenomenal consciousness, real or not real? What is phenomenal consciousness? Uh, your inner world of experience. It's real. Okay. Free will? No. Selves or persons? Yes. Genders? Yes. Races? No. Species? No. Well, this is, I I really would love to say more about this, but I said no. No, okay, great. Uh, Morality? Uh, No idea, yes. (laughs) Okay, rights? No, Uh, yes, sorry, yes. Yes. Okay. Knowledge. Yes. God or gods. No. Society. Well, uh, I, I need mm. to say more, but society. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> uh, let Money. me reverse. Uh, let's say gods. Yes, please. <laughs> Just okay, to be consistent so, with, so, so, with yes, what I. Okay. Yeah. okay, fine. Uh, and you said society. Yes. Okay. Money. Yes. Numbers. Hmm. Yes. <laughs> Fictional characters? Yes. Holes, like a hole in the ground? Yes. Chairs? Yes. Sandwiches? Yes. <laughs> Science? Yes. Natural laws? Yes. Beauty? Yes. Love? Yes. Causality? Yes. And finally, time. Huh, that's a good one. Mm, I go with yes. <laughs> okay. okay. All right, you survived. So, How do you feel? I feel good. I think, I think just... Okay. Uh, no, you're going to... We'll, we'll save it because you'll stick around a little I bit. We'll do a little bonus content. Right. And right. we, can, uh, we can chat about which ones were particularly difficult for you there. All right. Um, but Philip, do you want to let folks know, uh, no, non-patrons know where they can find your content, Twitter, the whatnots? So I started uh, a, a website called uh, Protagonist Science, so www.protagonistscience.com, and there I try to, you know, accumulate all the pieces of things that I write. So I've been writing SciComm for five years. There's some of my articles and links to my blog there. I make uh, SciComm videos also. So there's my YouTube there. And there will be also more professional stuff coming up. So when I featured somewhere in a newspaper or somewhere, I will also uh, put it up there. So this I, I tend to make this my hub. So remember protagonist science and then you're good to go. Protagonist-science, yeah. 
Protecting Dead Science. All right, great. Thank you. And we'll put it in the show notes, of course. Um, yeah. And we appreciate you taking the time. And folks, if you'd like to hear more, you know, join us on Patreon and stick around for a little bit of, a little bit of extra chat. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to several new patrons, Booted Ballow, John Williams, and Frank Quist. And thanks, as always, to our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Lawrence Shielding, New Year, New 364 Days to Go, 357, rather, Dude, Fix the Vote, any election lawyers want to pioneer a case on the California Fair Maps Act, Chad T. and Jesse Urbinowitz and Brenda Goodman, and all the thanks to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor's show, Louisa Lyons' Filmed Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod, or you can email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus VIP content. Most of all, no matter the content you consume, you are the void and the void is you.